Good morning and welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We're going to be talking, as we always do, about issues that are of concern in Maine and of importance to the people of our state. And the one we're talking about today is sadly a concern across the country. We're talking about recovery and opioids. Recovery is a good news story because it exists. It happens. And what we want to talk about is how it happens, how it's brought about, what the policies are on the state level, on the national level. And my first guest this morning is one of my favorite colleagues, Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. A lot of similarities between West Virginia and Maine, both essentially uh, rural states who have been really hammered by the opioid epidemic. Shelley, give me a picture of what's happened in West Virginia. Well, West Virginia has the unfortunate distinction to be the state that has the highest amount of deaths resulting from overdoses. It hit us earlier, I think, than a lot of other states. And in terms of the addiction issue, we have the reports of a pharmacy of a little town of, you know, 230 people dispensing 12 million pain pills. Good Lord. Uh, uh, good Lord. That, and, that, seriously, that kind that, of ratio? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. That's a that's a fact. Wow. And so uh, then, of course, moving to heroin and and, and fentanyl and, and methamphetamine. So we've seen a lot of our communities from the ground up in terms of recovery decide that we can't wait for a solution from the state or the federal government. we got to figure out how to solve this on the ground. And uh, a lot of what they're doing and we're doing in West Virginia has made its way into several of our bills. Well, and and I think somewhat belatedly, you and I would agree, we finally have done some some right. serious uh, bills around here in the last couple of years, and money has flowed out to the states. It has. It has. I think what happened to us in West Virginia, probably in Maine as well, the problem arises, and then you realize we don't have the treatment facilities right. available. People are waiting uh, long periods of time to get into treatment. We know that sometimes, uh, many times, treatment one treatment doesn't work. It, it you know It's a multiple treatment. Kind of yeah, you have to do it yeah. more, and and that's true of alcoholism and smoking. Right. I mean, one go round doesn't necessarily work, and so we have to understand that it may take repeated trips through the system to finally reach recovery. Right, and what works for one individual, like a medication-assisted treatment, might work for somebody. An abstinence treatment might work for somebody else, and uh, and and so I think you know drug courts uh, have great success in in our state for the right person you know, as a diversionary tactic for criminal action. I actually had a young woman came in and she had 17 state felonies uh, against her when she was 19. Good Lord. And uh, she has now gotten all of, because of the state laws have been changed to be able to expunge her record because this was over 10 years ago. It scared her straight. I mean, that first night in jail was all she needed. She went through the drug court. She's a big proponent of drug courts. So it can work. You have to have all these different options. And I think um, we're trying a lot of different things, and some of them are successful, some of them not so much. Well, this thing hit. It, it really was an, a truly an epidemic. We've lost about a person a day to overdoses. So just It's gone down slightly in the last year, but you know nobody knows exactly whether that's a trend or, or just... Uh, a, a blip, but it's uh, and particularly rural areas. Have you found right. that the small towns are some of the hardest hit? It is, and I think you know. Of course, uh, our friends who have these large cities would say all of our towns are small towns, and relatively speaking, they are. Uh, in the state of West Virginia, we, hit, we lost nine hundred and nine, so we're losing two two people a day wow. at least two and a half on average. And and yes, it is hitting the small town. It's hitting our. 
it hit our southern part of West Virginia. We had a downturn in our coal industry, a lot of layoffs, a lot of kind of anxiety and hopelessness, and it sort of started there. But then it's in our eastern panhandle, which is the part very close to Washington, D.C., that has very low unemployment, but it has a proximity to Baltimore, so there's a supply chain there that can supply people in our part of the, that part is, of the state. Is there any particular demographic? In Maine, it's a lot of young people. Is well, it, I think is the ages the are, are like 18 to 34. I mean, I think it, it does it does have a tendency to do that, yes. But I think one of the things that's different from this epidemic, and we might have seen earlier on other drug epidemics, is it's all socioeconomic classes. It's it, it, There's nobody that's immune. I mean, I can literally tell you, Families of the children that my kids went to school with, uh, the public schools in in Charleston, West Virginia, they know probably 10 to 15 families affected, and and many of those were deaths. Is there a recovery movement in West Virginia? Are there people that are successfully getting through the programs and coming out the other side? There is. Uh, We have Huntington, West Virginia has been particularly hit. That's the home of Marshall University. And it had one day where it had 26 overdoses in the same day. And two people died from that. And that in, was in Huntington. In Huntington within a four hour period. And it was a real wake up call. So Huntington really came together as a community to try to solve this from the bottom up, working with a very innovative fire chief, Jan Rader, working with the drug courts, working with the community. They they're the ones that have gotten the concept of quick reaction teams, which go into the hospital when somebody is overdosing. They then visit the home the next day. It's, it's, it's a combination of a law enforcement who's plain clothes, a social worker, and maybe a faith-based person who will go in and say, are you ready to try recovery? If you're not ready, we're here when you're ready. We want to help you. So, because there hasn't been any follow up, these people come right. in, they get out of their overdose, they're right, and they go off. right back into the life they where right they they, they were. Another thing that Huntington's worked on is to try to care for the babies that are born with drug exposure. They created a place called Lily's Place, which is a uh, non-hospital environment where babies are taken to kind of rock them out of their uh, drug addiction and and issues, working with the mother on parenting skills or the parents. And it's been a very successful model. And we actually have addressed some of the standards that are at Lily's Place. It's Medicaid. Uh, We were able to get a Medicaid reimbursement for that. that. It's less expensive to do it outside the hospital setting. Sure. And, And so that's been a real eye-opening experience for Huntington, a lot of people coming in to, well, you, to, you to model after that. You mentioned the, the the people that come to the hospital includes law enforcement, but our law enforcement people have been emphatic that we can't arrest our way out of right. this problem. Yours right. have reached the same conclusion. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's to the point now, though, where our law enforcement, I was just at the state police headquarters last weekend, you know, they're carrying Narcan with them everywhere they go. You know, you touch a little bit of that fentanyl and you could be going to an overdose. That's happened with our law enforcement. So there, uh, I worry about law enforcement fatigue, quite frankly, because, you know, when they get the call, you know, go to 450 22nd Street and they know where they're going right. and, and they know what's going to be there because they've been there before. And I think that that's asking them to do a lot. It's asking them to do a lot. Are you seeing success stories? Yes, we are. Actually, just yesterday, uh, it's just such a multifaceted issue. Just yesterday, our U.S. attorney, along with some of the southern regional U.S. attorneys, just uh, indicted 12 physicians for overprescribing because that's no another kidding. issue. Yes. Part of, because uh, that's where a lot of this started mm-hmm. with, was with these mm-hmm. pain pills. Yeah, they said, I mean, according to the indictment, one of the doctors would meet 
people in a parking lot and write prescriptions probably for, you know, a certain amount of dollars. So, you know, attacking that is critical. And uh, I think that um, uh, transition is, is difficult. If you get out of treatment, if it's successful, how are you going to get a job? Well, that's one of the things I was wanted to talk about is if you if you go through treatment, you come out clean, and then you can't get a job or an apartment because you have a record involving right. drugs, you're right back where you started. You're right. right back in the life that put you there. You are. And, and we've really got to break down that stigma, I think. Absolutely. And I think businesses are beginning because we have a work, workforce shortage. Yep. Uh, I have uh, talked with business owners who are willing to do that second, kind of a second chance sort of look. Uh, maybe I've more talked scrutiny. to business owners that say these are some of the best workers they've had because they really appreciate the opportunity. And they need the help. You know, interesting. We had a we have a small chain pharmacy in West Virginia. Who the owner? Uh, it's a family owned, and she's second generation, or might be third generation. But she started a foundation for recovered, recovered, out of recovery addicts to be able to get money to go to school because a lot of them have already burned through their whatever grants they could ever have, or mm-hmm. if they have a felony, they can't get them. So, you know, that's another, I think, good thing that West Virginia's done that could be modeled across the country where nonprofits are helping people get the job skills they need. Well, you, you mentioned the worker shortage. In Maine, every business I talk to needs people. Yeah. And it's ironic that that it really serious economic problem is hitting at the same time that people we're losing people out of the workforce because of this problem. I know. I know. It, it It's probably one of the deepest cutting problems I've ever, in our state, really, um, really sad. I mean, I've visited recovery houses and and uh, talk with people that are in the middle of it who say they cannot do it without medication-assisted uh, treatment. Uh, you know, the pushback on that is, well, you know, you're just trading one drug for another, but uh, they're able to hold a job. They're able to keep their life together, whereas if they're hooked on heroin or shooting heroin all the time, they can't. Right. We have 7,000 more children in foster care than we had before this whole thing started. Well, um, one of the phenomenons that I've seen in Maine is, and it's kind of poignant, is grandparents raising right, kids. Right. You must see that as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as a grandparent myself, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not ready to I'm not go ready back to, to jump back into that exhausting. Uh, but, you know, the sad thing to me for grandparents is, in many cases, is... Um, you know, they've planned for their futures. They've planned to, you know, monetarily be able to handle retirement and and maybe travel. And then they find themselves strapped uh, right. financially and, and unable to uh, meet the challenge. And then when you ask them, where where are the parents? Well, my daughter, you know, it, they're, they're carrying so many burdens. Yeah. Uh, but they're doing good work. I mean, if we didn't have the grandparents stepping up, it would be a much worse situation. Yeah. You talk about those... You multiply those foster children by two or three. Right. Uh, right. And and that, that gets to the point. I mean, one of the issues that we find, again, I think our states are similar, is isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people are isolated, if they don't have community, if they don't have support generally, that's another factor that leads them back into this life. It does. And I think, you know, you can imagine all the things of, you know, low self-esteem and you've alienated your family because you've either A, stolen from them or or done uh, worse uh, trying to, you know, feed your addiction. So it is isolating and lonely and uh, it's not easy. I mean, that's the one thing. I have a good friend whose son is right in the middle of this. And I mean, he's been to four rehabs 
and they've tried everything and it, it just it's it just impacts the entire family they have their child that child is impacted by all the turmoil of but is my son going to wake up tomorrow and you're mentioning your your friend's son um one of the things we have to get over in this country is that these are bad people right that i mean you know we we grew up with a you know the word addict and and it was they were somehow it was their fault and my understanding is that a lot of these drugs literally hijack your brain. I mean, you start right. after you've one or two hits of heroin, that's all you want. Right. And it's not anything you're volunteering for. Yeah. And that goes to this, again, to this fundamental issue of stigma that we have to deal with. Well, I think, too, you and I both been, have been supportive of the research and development that goes with this. What is it about your brain neurons that makes you an addict and me not, or me an addict and you not? Right. Uh, what is it? What kind of blockers? You know, actually, NIH has been down in West Virginia quite a bit, looking at you know what kind of preventative measures can be put into place to head this off. But another one of the things I think uh, that that you and I did together that I think is going to have a significant impact in Maine and in West Virginia is, and I worked with um, your New Hampshire colleagues, our New Hampshire colleagues on this is. The formula funding for treatment is done by population. Right. We have states that are highly affected. Ohio can drive. They're affected, but their whole per- not their whole state like our states are. Right. And so we were able to get a carve out of about 15%. So the most highly effective demonstrated by some of the bad statistics that we've already said can get additional dollars. Originally, West Virginia was getting like $7 million dollars. Uh, last year we got like 28 because we were able to make the case if we don't stop it here and if we don't get more dollars, it can really, at critical mass, to be able to do some s- significant right. treatment and recovery, we're just going to be bumping along. Well, in, we've gotten a lot additional uh, yeah, resources into Maine. And, and I think you and I are both concerned. We want to be sure we know where it's going right. and that it's being well spent and right. that it's actually getting to the to the people that it uh, it's aimed at. Well, listen... It's it's been great to work with you on this. And remember, at the very beginning, I think one of our first bills was the Crib Act, where we were dealing with right. with addiction of babies, babies. Uh, which is uh, very significant. I mean, I I remember being in a rural hospital. Twenty five percent of the births had some drug effects. I know. The good news is that apparently it's not a, a permanent problem. The kids can be can be okay. Weaned off, yeah. But. If they go right back into a home where this is going to be happening, it's we're not going to get anywhere. But I, I, what I was beginning to say is it's been a pleasure to work with you Thank on these you. things. You know, our states have a lot in common, uh, good, solid, hardworking people. Yeah. And uh, this is a this is one that we're just going to have to keep, uh, keep pushing on. And I, I appreciate having your fellowship on making this happen. That's good. Well, thank you. And uh, I look forward to... The day when we maybe we don't have to talk about it. Maybe we've uh, solved the problem. I think that's what we're all aiming for. That's it. All right. Thank you. Shelly Moore Capito of West Virginia. Great pleasure to have her with us. And stay tuned. In a minute, we're going to take a little break. And then I'm going to be talking to a guy truly on the front lines in Maine, uh, Bob Fowler of the Milestone Foundation, an old friend. And we're going to see what's happening on the front lines. Again, thanks to Shelly Moore Capito, senator from West Virginia. And we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Inside Maine. We're talking today about a serious topic that affects our state on a daily basis, and that is 
the drug epidemic, the opioid epidemic, but the good news about recovery. Uh, my guest right now is Bob Fowler, an old friend who runs the Milestone Foundation in Portland and has been on the front lines of this issue as long as, as I remember. Uh, and I want to get some views from him about where we are, what's working, what's not working, how we can make it work better. Bob, glad to have you with us. Thank you, Senator. Glad to be with you. You heard my discussion with Senator Capito of West Virginia. Give me a flavor of the scope of the problem as you see it now. And I'm particularly interested in whether you're seeing any improvement. Uh, Are we about where we've been? Where do we stand with this plague? Yeah, I I did listen to your your interview. It was was interesting. I think uh, a number of the the issues that you talked about resonated with what uh, I'm seeing and what we're seeing here. I think that it feels like things are moving in, a, in a, a good direction, a better direction when it comes to access to treatment for opioid use disorder. And uh, and there are a lot of people who are getting into recovery and are kind of showing the way and being in the workforce and, uh, uh, and, and doing quite well. Well, I mean, I can remember four or five years ago, there were practically no treatment beds in Maine, very few you were so stressed, you, you didn't even have enough beds for detox, let alone treatment. So I take it that's that's gotten better, and, and uh, maybe even with some help from, from us, from the federal government. I think the, the federal funding has certainly been helpful, and it is true that we uh, the, the resources that are available to provide access to people who are seeking treatment just are, are, is outmatched by the demand. That, that remains the case. I think earlier this year, in Maine, we expanded access to health insurance through Medicaid, and so we have a lot more people now who have uh, health insurance than they did prior, and that's great. That's really good news. The challenge we're seeing is that now the services, some of the treatment programs are overwhelmed with demand that far outstrips the need. Well, isn't there a uh, a workforce problem that it's it's hard? I mean, everyone in Maine needs workers, and I presume that's true in this treatment area as well. Yeah, I can't even tell you how big an issue that is. I, I was at a, a meeting last week with about 35 or so directors from behavioral health organizations, and probably the biggest issue that was on everybody's mind was the crisis in uh, workforce that, that we're experiencing. There are just not enough workers to, even for programs that have the capacity to potentially serve more individuals, they can't expand just because we don't have the workers, you know, behavioral health workforce to be able to provide the services. By the way, I, you know, I see a lot of people from Maine nonprofits and businesses. That's the most serious problem facing the Maine economy right now and facing Maine, I think, is, is workforce, uh, just the sheer a lack of people. There's no simple solution to it, but it's got to involve a lot of solutions. But ironically, one of them is that we can't afford to lose all these people to substance abuse uh, that we need in the workforce. It's so true. And, and it's really, it's, the, it's sort of the, the two sides of that same coin, that we have people who are not available to the workforce because they're kind of going through the, the, the struggles with their, you know, the addiction issues that they're that they're confronting. The other side of the coin is that there's this army of people who have, uh, have found recovery and are in recovery who, uh, as you were discussing with, with Senator Capito, uh, have really comprised a, a whole new workforce and a, and a really motivated and, and uh, excellent set of uh, potential and present employees. But isn't it true that often they're not able to get jobs because of the 
the record? Are employers getting to the point where they're willing to take a little bit of a chance and make this happen? Because the stigma has been a problem in the past. Uh, stigma is a, is a huge problem. And, and in some ways, you could almost argue that it's the, it's the biggest problem that we could address stigma in all the ways that that manifests. Uh, we would go a long, long way to opening doors for people to, to be willing to raise their hand to seek treatment and uh, on the employment side. And, you know, stigma, I think, pervades all aspects of our medical care and just, just our communities in general. Well, that's why I think it's hopeful. I, I remember last year, Mary and I came down to a, a recovery rally down in Deering Oaks in Portland, and basically everybody there was in, in recovery, and they weren't ashamed to say it and to to share that. And I think that's part of of uh, and in fact, there there was a big deal in Washington four or five years ago now on the on the National Mall. There were probably ten or fifteen thousand people, or perhaps more, sort of coming out of the recovery closet. I guess I would say, and uh, I think that's this, this is a cultural thing we're going to have to all deal with. Yeah, that's been it's been really remarkable for me to witness in thirty years or so of doing this kind of work and seeing the real shift in just you know the last few years of especially young people, just were really being willing to, to step up. And, Senator, I know you know some of the, the people in Maine who have been sure. really just kind of inspiring voices in that regard. And that really has been gratifying to, to watch. Well, let's hope that that attitude becomes the, the norm. And what about sober houses? Tell me about, tell me, give me, give me a sort of case study, Bob, of, the, of somebody that comes to you, you or you find on, literally on the street uh, what happens? What's the path? Well, there can be many paths. One path might be if, in that scenario that you're talking about. So at Milestone, uh, we do have some uh, programs that provide outreach services on the street, and we can uh, potentially engage somebody to come into the Milestone Detox program, for example, where they work with our medical staff to just kind of safely withdraw from the effects of their physical addictions to particular drugs. And then our staff works on helping those individuals once they go through this, you know, week or so long uh, detox program to step down to another level of care. And that could be a residential treatment program, could be an outpatient treatment program. And for many people, housing is such a need. Many people we see in our detox have lost their housing. So recovery housing, also known as sober housing, has become really an important piece of the puzzle. And that's really exploded both in Maine and across the country. So the path would be detox to some kind of treatment. Does a recovery house come after the, the recovery program? Uh, if you, let's say you're at a residential program, you come out and a, 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 a recovery house or a sober house is the next step. And that enables you to live in a safe place and then start to rebuild your life. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's exactly that. That's an example of, of one path that that might happen. Something else that may happen is that somebody leaves a detox program, and then they're referred to, uh, say, when we're talking about the opioid use disorder here. So, say they're referred to a an outpatient program where they may be prescribed a medication like a Suboxone, and they receive outpatient treatment, but they live in one of these recovery houses where they just receive support and live in a community of like-minded people who are all committed to one another's recovery. And I think that underlines an important point. If these folks come through this process, can't get a job, can't find a place to live, they're going to be right back in the, the life that got them into trouble in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so critical that 
there are services available for people in the moment that they are ready for that. It, it just doesn't work for us to be able to say, okay, good, you're ready today to get into treatment. We've got a bed for you in two weeks and you're on the wait list and, and we'll see you in two weeks. In two weeks, if you're lucky, it, it used to be more like three months. And it could be three months. Yeah. And depending on the service and where people live you know, in the state of Maine and, and what they're looking for, it can be I mean, really, the distinction between two weeks and three months for people is almost irrelevant in a lot of cases. Uh, it might as well be three years because people are ready right now, and we really need to have open doors and have access for people in the moment that they're ready. Those moments are, are often transitory, and they don't last. And we're not there yet, but it is better than it was, isn't it, I hope? It's better than it was. It's better than it was. Yep, there's certain services that we, we really need to just provide more. I'll say residential treatment in particular is one that we're seeing as a, a real lack of available services. So we're often not able to refer people directly from detox here right into a residential treatment program. And if we discharge people to the community, to the streets, to the shelters, with the hopes of getting into a residential treatment program two weeks or three months down the road, it's really a recipe for relapse and all, all sorts of negative outcomes. Bob, we talked a few minutes ago about the stigma, and I want to come back to that just for a minute because I think it's really important to, for people to understand this is a disease. We don't really know exactly how the brain works and how it processes. Research is now showing that some people have a proclivity toward addiction of some form. But we have to understand that, that these are not bad people. That's a fundamental sort of cultural mindset that I think has to, has to be changed. These are people that are caught in the throes of a really serious disease. And, uh, you know, nobody uh, stigmatizes somebody when they have a broken leg or a, a pneumonia. Uh, and we got we to gotta try to understand that. That's very true. And the kind of rates of relapse and people either having recurrence of their disease or not is very comparable with some of these addiction disorders as it is with other chronic health diseases, diabetes, for example. Sure. And so, so you're right. It is, it's, in, it's important for us to recognize that it's a brain disease. And as you were saying earlier in your conversation with Senator Capito, it really does uh, hijack the thinking part of people's brains. And it just operates at a deeper level where good people will sometimes do bad things when they're in the throes of this. Well, let me wind it up with giving you a chance to give me your three top policy wishes. What, uh, If you could wave a wand, uh, what would you have us do, whether us being the federal government, the Congress, the state government? What are the things that, that we really ought to be focusing on, Bob? Oh, well, there's it's hard to pin down to three. I, I mean, certainly, <laughs> uh, I, I think having access to care, as we were saying a little while ago, is so critically important. And I know uh, it's been really wonderful to see how this has been recognized. It, it, it's not a political partisan issue. And it, it's good to see that we have all hands on deck in looking to make investments in increasing access to, to care. So yeah, and I, I, I can tell you down here it's not a partisan issue. I mean, Shelley Capito I was just talking to was a Republican. Patty Murray from Washington has been a leader on this, a Democrat. Gene Shaheen's been a huge leader on this in New Hampshire. Uh, Rob Portman in Ohio. So it, happily, this is an issue that isn't partisan that we seem to be able to work on on a joint basis. Uh, it 
is excellent. And, and I know that there are, there are moves underway to eliminate what's called an X waiver for, for prescribers. There, there are unique burdens that prescribers of uh, Suboxone, buprenorphine, are required to jump through in order to prescribe this form of medication-assisted treatment that is considered to be the gold standard for treatment for opioid use disorder. And I know there are efforts underway to eliminate some of the barriers to make them easier for prescribers to prescribe. Mm -hmm. Okay, what else? What else do we need to do? All right. Well, I think I know there's also some um, some efforts uh, underway to kind of getting back to that workforce issue around student loan repayment to to encourage people to work in the behavioral health field. You know, it's not a highly paid field. You know, it's not engineers and highly compensated individuals. And so programs that focus on loan repayment for behavioral health clinicians is really okay. key, I think. So that would help you with, with your uh, workforce problems. It would. And, and our workforce problems are related to our access issues. So, so everything, everything is all intertwined. Well, Bob, I, I want to really thank you for the work that you're doing. You're, you've been at this. You're a saint that you've been at this for a long time, and you're working in a, a place where there wasn't a lot of public attention, not a lot of resources, but you've done great work in Maine, and, and I just want you, to, want you to know that people know and appreciate that. And the final thing is I want you to keep in touch with us, uh, with me and uh, with the congressional delegation and people in the state because a lot of people are thinking about how to – how to make this thing better, and a guy with your perspective can be crucial in giving us the right ideas and making sure we're moving in the right direction. So uh, that's a that's a, a thank you and a request. Uh, thank you for what you're doing, but uh, stay with it and uh, help us to know how to help you the most effectively. Well, thank you, Senator. Thank you for, for focusing on this area, both now on this particular broadcast, but just in general, I know that you, this has been an area of, of passion and focus for you for a, for a long, long time. So I appreciate your leadership on that. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for joining us on Inside Maine. This has been a serious topic today, uh, but one that uh, I feel we are making a little bit of progress on, but we have to maintain the momentum and build on it. These are good Maine people. Uh, we can't afford to, to lose them. And that's what uh, that's what we're all aiming for. So thanks again for being with us on Inside Maine. Thanks to Bob Fowler and Shelley Moore Capito. See you next time.